Chapter Eleven of Upper Canada Sketches by Thomas Conant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. There is no other land like thee, no dearer shore. Thou art the shelter of the free, the home, the port of liberty. Thou hast been and shalt ever be till time is o'er. Ere I forget to think upon my land, shall mother curse the son she bore the event known as the trent affair november eighth eighteen sixty one when the american man-of-war san jacinto commanded by captain wilkes stopped the british mail steamship trent in the open sea boarded her and arrested the confederate commissioners mason and slidell then on their way to england to plead the cause of the south and seek its recognition as a belligerent power caused considerable excitement in canada the northern states were much elated over this grave breach of the law of nations but great britain was indignant and demanded the instant release of the captives a declaration of war as the alternative troops were sent to halifax and quebec one regiment riding from halifax to quebec in the midst of winter there being no intercolonial railway at that date all canadians of military age were enrolled and the excitement caused thereby seemed almost to deprive many of their reasoning powers there was much bombastic talk and it certainly appeared as if a lot of our fire-eaters wanted war and a chance to distinguish themselves and in no instance did this class of the community suppose that the united states could or would strike back no they evidently believed we were simply to band together and eat up the people of the northern states a well-known practicing physician of oshawa boasted that he with ten thousand men could march right through to washington however lincoln's firm wisdom prevailed the american government quietly acquiescing in great britain's demand gave up the captives and the war cloud passed among the many who had enlisted in the northern army were several from oshawa robert warren son of john b warren died from exposure and his body was found after an engagement begrimed with dust and smoke by his schoolmate dr john wall who was serving as surgeon in the army in virginia john cared for the body of his friend and brought it home to oshawa for burial ah how many of our poor fellows were buried where they fell on fame's eternal camping ground their silent tents are spread which glory with solemn round the bivouac of the dead the grand trunk railway carried military equipments from quebec and montreal to toronto that winter and did a thriving business officers guarded these stores on the cars one cold day one of these officers fell out of the grand trunk car going up scarborough heights and landed in the snow making his way bareheaded to jerry annis's house it being the nearest he got him to drive him to toronto eleven miles away at this period in canada very many of the industries were carried on by bank capital that is to say endorsed notes were made for three months discounted and renewed from quarter to quarter by the capital thus raised manufacturing lumbering tanning and like industries were carried on at this time of writing when loans are current at five per cent 
it seems almost incredible that only thirty years ago businessmen and manufacturers depended upon chartered banks for their capital renewing their notes quarterly and by so doing paid the interest quarterly in advance making interest at ten and one-half to eleven per cent per annum such however was the case and the banks throve by that manner of doing business banks usually succeed in canada those old institutions that helped very materially to develop the country but which failed failed because of making too great loans upon real estate and having a lot of it thrown on their hands banks however though in deep water may keep on for years until someone expresses fears of their solvency said an old manager of the bank of upper canada to me a bank is like a woman all right until someone says something against her character from my earliest recollection the general saying to express soundness emphatically was as good as the bank of upper canada the old bank however kept on taking over real estate distilleries sawmills foundries and such until they had to liquidate at i think about thirty cents on the dollar during the excitement caused by the trent affair a s whiting and e c tuttle who just previously had started a large and important manufactory of hand harvest tools such as scythes forks hoes and rakes were succeeding nicely william l gilbert of winstead connecticut was endorsing their notes they applied to the ontario bank for twenty thousand dollars as a part of their capital gilbert's credit was above suspicion he was a millionaire but the prospect of war from the trent affair frightened the ontario bank people and whiting and tuttle had to arrange with my father to make the endorsation until people got rid of their temporary madness this is an instance of the peculiar state of affairs in upper canada financially during eighteen sixty two some of our branch lines of railways too were in part built by using bank capital and discounted notes the grand trunk railway in the first instance was built by british capital and the loans which afterwards became gifts of the millions of the government of canada the great canadian pacific railway too was built by capitalists with generous aid from the government but the branch lines asked for bonuses from the different municipalities which they touched townships villages and cities issued bonds borrowed the money and gradually provided a sinking fund from the taxes received by which in time to pay off the bonds in the abstract it seems unfair and uncalled for that a township had to pay for the railway in advance in order to get it to touch that township and then when it came be charged stiff freight and passenger rates by the same grateful railway it was a bitter pill to swallow but it had to be taken those municipalities which did not swallow the pill are to-day in the lurch as we say in canada i paid one of them a visit a little time ago and i give herewith a sketch of my experiences the long uninterrupted winter was dragging its slow length along without a break even the january thaw as always foretold by the oldest inhabitant had not come to the hamlet during that winter snow fell once or twice during the week with unerring regularity 
roadways had been beaten and tracked in the snow and the faithful villagers had tramped through it from day to day nothing in fact had happened to break the monotony of this quiet village hamlet for the entire winter season perhaps the last noted occurrence was just as the snow came when the deacon's horse ran away and came bounding back into the village without the deacon or anyone else holding the lines and the robes partly in and partly out of the cutter that occurrence for a time had been food for gossip among the quiet villagers some stoutly averring that the deacon was drunk while others putting it mildly said the deacon was took bad in his head suddenly as he sometimes was wont to be and couldn't guide his horse just how it was was still a mooted point even as late as the dreaded ides of march the time of my visit to this quiet place it seems no one had died there were but few births and only one or two young fellows had spunk enough to do any right down earnest courting for the whole live-long stormy winter happenings there were none well business called me to this little rural hamlet in the gusty month of march this peaceful village removed from the path of the iron horse and out of the way place altogether during the general upheaval of things in ontario when most towns and villages were up and about to secure railway communication the deacon of this little place and a few other forehanded citizens strongly objected to giving any bonus for any number of railways be they one or more so the village has gone without a railway excellent people they are indeed and they change so very slowly and deliberately that old rip van winkle could not possibly have found a better place wherein or whereabout to take that long memorable nap of his even were rip to change his neighbors would not for in the twenty years while he calmly slumbered the weekly sewing circles would infallibly be held and around and about the sewing circles everything in this wayside or rather out of the wayside hamlet revolved when mrs dobson put on her new striped stuffed dress for the first time and came down to the circle every eye was upon her and she had no rest till she told where she obtained it how much it cost per yard and how many yards it took for the dress particularly this is worthy of mention to enable those remote from this village of snow-trodden paths to realize fully its unchangeableness and its hunger for something out of the ordinary to give food for talk and thought a boy of fourteen had driven me from the railway station twelve miles away as he carried the meagre leather bag denominated by grace her majesty's mail in a square-boxed sleigh drawn by one horse such a sleigh as in new england they term a pung at the village hostelry i was domiciled within four wooden-sided clapboarded white-painted walls where i am aided and slaped and all for a dollar per day after the ample evening tea and over a quiet pipe in the corner of the bar while conning a paper two days old the voluble and voluminous landlady asks if i will not go and hear the professor to-night not having been at the weekly sewing circle for that week i am not posted and in my innocence ask of the professor and what's to be heard from him he's a psychologist sir 
and they all say he can make people do just what he chooses to make them do he's going to speak to-night in the temperance hall just across the way all the village will be there and i think you would be amused sir if you chose to go thanks madame for the information and i'll certainly go the temperance hall is jammed well that's the ordinary way of putting it but in this case it is pressed in full much the same as they press cotton in the rude bales on the home plantations down south before they are sent away to the big cotton presses in the cities a stranger well we must let him in for perhaps he's a friend of the prof can't quite claim the honor but would like to get in stepping over the tops of the long seats i get in and make my way up near the professor now this professor is one of those nondescripts who comes from nowhere in particular he opens his mouth and gives vent to sound in a steady volume but says nothing in particular his speech is all about psychology and its wonders and what he proposes to do some ten minutes of this then he invites up half a dozen young men from the gathering for experiments applicants for experiment are seated on chairs on the platform before the professor the latter looks one of these steadily in the eye for a couple of minutes and then makes a few undulatory motions back and forth before his eyes with his right hand and touches his forehead with his fingers already he has the spell and sits staring into vacancy as if he were about to have an extra-large photograph taken all in turn are spelled and all are a success save one who is requested to take his seat again among the people and now the fun commences one fellow the professor assures is hunting and he hands him his cane for a gun a flock of ducks down the fellow goes and crawls on hands and knees he fires and the recoil of the gun throws him prostrate upon the stage up he gets and at it he goes again during the half hour i sat there i think the fellow bagged as big a bag of ducks as usually falls to the lot of a sportsman nowadays another youth sees an excellent opportunity for a swim and quickly doffs coat vest and would doff more if not quickly stopped by the wonderful professor prostrate he falls upon the platform and goes through the motions of a genuine swim with feet drawn up again extended and the long-drawn stroke of the arms regularly and in natural order repeated a perfect facsimile of a swim the spelled number three came next and fancied that the glass of water which the professor extended to him contained excellent port wine his lips smacked and his eyes sparkled but he must propose a toast which was something about johnny jones's girl and young mac cutting jones out this local hit brought down the house and it was fully five minutes before the audience could be got into quiet again now jones and mac were the other two spelled subjects on the platform and of course a duel had to be fought the far-seeing professor smelling such duels from afar had provided two huge cornstalks which he handed to the duelists for swords each one feels carefully the keen edge of the lethal weapons and prepares himself for the fray seconds are chosen from the other spelled ones on the platform who for the moment leave their ducks their swimming and their glasses of port wine 
to see that the marquis of queensberry's rules are faithfully carried out no thrusts below the belt and on no account any hits below the belt and jones's girl all this time is looking on she had gotten herself up elaborately for the occasion without a doubt her wardrobe had been duly dissected and priced and deplored and praised at the last circle jones's girl's mother is there too sitting just behind her the low mean fellow to make such an exhibition of himself i would never let him go home with me again send back his ring mirandy the idea to get up before all the people here and fight with cornstalks the laughter before pent up controlled held in kept down now bursts the bonds human nature in this village of snow paths could hold in no longer it's just a broad ha 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 and for the girls all except jones's girl a tee hee hee the old deacon joins in it's even too much for his gravity in the deacon's case the explosion was rather serious he began with a cough and a sneeze got red in the face got redder his sides shook a blast from his nose then the explosion ho 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 if the house was brought down before it was fetched now the fun was so hilarious for those people hadn't had a good laugh that winter some of the other girls whose bows were yet to be found are heard to exclaim the absurd fellow i wonder that she can countenance him at all but the duel three paces now at the word one two three and the wax of the cornstalks resound it is a spectacle to arouse laughter from even a hypochondriac time first round no blood well seconds look after your principles while the duelists are resting the professor goes on to speak his piece he has been a close student of human nature its mental alchemy stored away in the great human storehouse an observer like me can bring it out a great science ladies and gentlemen and i shall give one more exhibition before this highly intelligent community to-morrow evening and well he may for the house this evening has paid him seventy dollars at least while this speech is going on the professor keeps hold of one of the hands of jones's opponent in the duel and manages to rub some red paint or pigment on his wrist while he is talking take your places gentlemen already at the word one two three and such a pounding of cornstalks pounded so effectually that they fly in fragments all over the hall blood first blood honor is satisfied gentlemen jones is the winner shake hands gentlemen that's according to the marquis of queensberry's rules yes that's it seconds take care of your principles and jones's girl is all smiles and will evidently allow the hero to see her home to-night more applicants for the spell come up as i walk over the seat-backs to the door making my way back to mine hostelry and to bed this is a faithful picture of life as i saw it in a remote ontario village a village too mean to pay a single dollar to get a railway and which therefore was beaten in the race the tedium of a winter's life therein 
snowbound and with its humdrum, is not an experience to be coveted. If you like the picture, you can find such a place for a winter's residence next winter easily, but I fancy most readers will agree with me in saying that the deacon, the four-handed citizens, and the village generally, made a serious mistake in not securing railway communication when it was to be had. Villages, as well as citizens, to keep up in the race nowadays, must be alive and moving, or both are soon left far behind by their neighbors' ambitions. Some Family History There came to the Whitbys, from one of the Midland counties of England, a bachelor accompanied by his widowed sister and her little girl. Possessing capital, he bought one of the best farms of these favored townships. It was a glebe of about 150 acres, without any wasteland within its borders, and was nicely built upon. Here the bachelor brother farmed thoroughly and well, while the sister presided over the household and looked after the education and care of her growing daughter of their former history no one knew aught the man was a jolly good fellow open-handed free and hospitable they used to say that no visitor ever came to the home and went away dry unless he chose to not that i mean to say this english gentleman bachelor was a drinker only that according to the light of those days the rites of hospitality were administered when the tankard kept pace with the choicest dishes of the table. There are probably few living now who are alive and partakers of this bachelor's kindnesses. The farm was bought in the late forties, and he and his sister left it for their English home once more about 1863. But to follow more intimately their fortunes in Ontario, we must speak now of the young daughter. Admirers of this English-Canadian belle will even to this day aver that she was surpassingly beautiful none of that day had more to be thankful for in this particular while her charm of manner was even in excess of her beauty naturally suitors came among those who were truly fascinated was a young english barrister even then known as a pushing rising fellow indeed he has risen by sheer downright hard work as well as ability, till today he is one of the high officials of our Canadian courts, and preeminently a successful man. This man proposed duly, and after mature deliberation and consultation with the mother, was accepted. Before the knot was tied, however, he said to the beautiful girl that he would immediately after marriage expect to receive full control of her property." Once more the affianced girl and her mother consulted, and their conclusion was that he had come courting the eight thousand dollars which she possessed in her own right, and not her particularly, but only as an accessory, so he was jilted. Next came a long-haired, tall minister, who pressed his suit with all the ardor his glib tongue was capable of, and he won. They were married and lived together a couple of years, and two children were born to them. The minister went on with his duties, and outwardly all seemed to go fairly well, but those most intimate with the family always felt that there was some mystery connected with him. Yet, suspect as much as they might, they could not charge him with any irregularities. 
a perfect specimen of a man he was endowed with high social qualities and capable of taking a high place in the ministry one fine day however he went out from the ministerial home for a morning walk leaving the young wife and two babes to await his coming to dinner dinner that day waited and continued to wait and is still waiting after the lapse of thirty-four years for it is a literal fact that no one so far as is known on earth ever saw the minister and husband after he crossed the threshold that morning in eighteen sixty three for a walk back to the mother and uncle on the farm went the young mother a few months in silence then came the record of a criminal trial for murder in a neighboring state where a minister had been tried for his life but by some technical legal flaw got off reading the trial record it was clearly brought out that this fiend had cut his wife's throat from ear to ear as she lay in bed and in such a manner as to make it thought she had committed suicide in refutation of that theory it was most clearly shown that the former wife could not no matter how much disposed do the deed herself but that the fiend of a husband did it and that he afterwards fled to ontario and to the whitbys and married our most beautiful maid this was too much for the mother and uncle their beautiful farm was sold and back to the midland counties of england again they went taking the young deserted wife and the two fatherless babes with them the bachelor brother has lately been gathered to his fathers and the sister has become a very old woman the deserted wife now the mother of a young man and a young woman is in her early old age retaining still much of the beauty of her earlier years while she learns to grow old gracefully in deeds of charity and kindnesses to her neighbors her time is occupied and she is seemingly happy in the love of her children her home life in the whitbys is never thought of lately however a resident near her canadian home called upon her and found that she had kept her property intact from her graceless minister husband and was surrounded by such outward comfort and even splendor as grand old england alone can give even surrounded with these pleasant accessories she is said to have inquired very minutely about her home across the water and of those who were once her friends and neighbors while a sigh escaped her as she sat and gazed as if looking far across the broad atlantic where she had spent so many happy as well as unhappy days in her home in ontario End of chapter eleven